everyone, this is what your pastor and tell you. I am on with Aaron Wilson Wright. We're going to be talking about early alphabetic inscriptions. How did we get the the earliest writings, and um, how do they relate to Hebrew and Egyptian and all that fun stuff? How are you doing today, Doctor Wilson Wright? Yeah, that, doing. That yeah, that's good. Yeah, uh, doing really <laughs> well. Thank you so much for for having me on the on the channel. Cool. Awesome. Okay. So, yeah. What's your background? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I received my PhD in 2016 uh, from the University of Texas at Austin uh, in Hebrew Bible and Ancient Near East. Um, and I guess I would say my, my research has two sort of big focal areas. Um, uh, one is the religions of ancient Israel. Um, that's kind of what my dissertation was indirectly on. Um, and then the other is uh, early alphabetic epigraphy. Um, and sort of the themes that, that connect these two are um, uh, one kind of big ideas that are still with us today. So, you know, alphabetic writing, monotheism, um, you know, really important concepts um, uh, that, are, that are still important uh, today. Um, and then the other concept is uh, contact between uh, Egypt and various Semitic speaking populations. So uh, Israelites, um, Canaanites, uh, groups like that. Um, and so, yeah, my, my dissertation and my first book um, was kind of more on the, the religion side, um, looking at the transmission of the goddess Othtart um, in the Late Bronze Age, um, looking at contact between uh, the Levant and Egypt and how um, Othtart came to be adopted into the Egyptian pantheon. Um, and then my second book, uh, which just came out, I think, last week, uh, Jeremiah's Egypt, um, is uh, looking at the references to Egypt in the book of Jeremiah uh, and arguing that mm. these reflect a particular um, time period uh, in Egypt. So uh, the Sayyid period or the, the 26th dynasty, um, arguing uh, that, you know, in, in the book of Jeremiah, right, Babylon is very important, you know, um, cast a really long shadow on the book, um, but Egypt is almost as important. Um, and I argue that, you know, actually, um, rather than it just being, you know, Babylon coming in and taking over Israel, um, really it's more of this clash between Babylon and Egypt, and they're fighting over uh, the Levant, and Israel is kind of caught in the middle. Uh, and there's sort of two wow. different camps, right? There's the, the pro-Babylon camp, uh, to which the historical prophet Jeremiah seems to have belonged to based on, you know, the oracle saying, you know, we need to surrender to Babylon, um, and a pro-Egypt group that, like, kept wanting to go back, you know, they, they got benefits from, from being uh, allied to the Egyptians um, mm -hmm. and kind of like kept being like, we need to go back to Egypt or like go back with the Egyptians, even though the Babylonians are coming because they obviously don't, don't like that. So um, yeah, uh, kind of a, a new perspective uh, on the book of Jeremiah that, that centers Egypt a little bit more. Very fascinating. We'll have to talk about that sometime and maybe even talk about it later if we have some extra time. Yeah, absolutely. So um, and then your future, what are your plans for the future as far as scholarship goes? Um, yeah, so uh, I really haven't had a, a chance to um, do kind of a, a book-length exploration of, of early alphabetic epigraphy. Um, and so I'd really like to um, yeah, write a book uh, on these early alphabetic inscriptions that we're going to be talking about uh, today. I think um, the sort of last critical edition was about 17 years ago. Um, some of the inscriptions um, that we'll talk about have been lost and relocated. Uh, we have new photographic techniques. So I think a lot of pieces are in place um, to like really get um, 
new results uh, and uncover new information about these inscriptions. So yeah, that's what I would, would love to work on in the future. Awesome, really, really cool stuff. Okay, so yeah, I mean, let's just dive into it. So, sure. um, you know, when talking about the early alphabetic inscriptions, can you talk about the nature of the different types of sources? So we can go, um, so we can go bit by bit, like uh, just context, content, dating, um, any of that stuff. We can go just context, or we can you can talk about just like the context of each, or I don't know what your plan is with that. But just go ahead and dive into it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think maybe I'll just talk about the different sites that have yielded early alphabetic inscriptions, um, and then that'll get us into content and, and dating. So um, I guess to, to start with, like the the main site, the one that has yielded the, the most uh, early alphabetic inscriptions, um, Sarabid al Khadam um, in the Sinai Peninsula. So um, this is an Egyptian turquoise mining facility um, that's in the Sinai, this is where Egypt got a lot of its turquoise. Um, you know, basically for thousands of years, um, there are Old Kingdom inscriptions. So these are from, you know, when the pyramids are built, um, you know, maybe around uh, 22, 2300 BCE. Um, a lot of inscriptions from the Middle Kingdom. Um, so more, you know, like 2000 to like 770 BCE approximately. And then there are a couple new kingdom inscriptions as well. So, um, you know, the site is used for a long time. Like the turquoise mines there apparently had a lot of turquoise. I don't really know very much about turquoise mining. Um, but, uh, you know, it was in use for a long period of time. Um, it ha kind of has two parts to the site. So, uh, there are the mines themselves, uh, where the, the mining was done. And then there's also this very large temple, uh, to the goddess Hathor. Um, who is kind of the, the patron deity of turquoise. She's called, she, uh, yeah, she's called the, the Lady of Turquoise. Um, and, you know, the Egyptians offered, you know, sacrifices and votive offerings, hoping to find lots of turquoise when they, when they went there. Um, you know, this is not a site that's occupied year round. Uh, it's in the Sinai Peninsula. It's not the most hospitable place. So uh, they would really just go like for a season and then uh, come back with the, the yield of turquoise that they had found. Um, and this site has yielded, uh, a lot of Egyptian inscriptions, uh, several hundred in fact, um, as well as I think now about 45 early alphabetic inscriptions. Um, there are a couple that were found in the temple itself. Um, there's the, the most famous, which is, um, Sinai 345. Um, the, these are all kind of numbered, um, when the original publication came out, the, Egyptian inscriptions were numbered one to 344. And then the, I think they had found seven early alphabetic inscriptions at that point, And those were numbered 345 to 352 or 351 or something like that. Um, and then they kind of reserved some space in case more early alphabetic inscriptions were discovered, which was smart because, um, you know, 30 plus uh, more inscriptions have been subsequently found from Sarabid al-Khadam, which is uh, quite nice. It's quite a, quite a haul um, hmm. from, from this time period. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the, the most famous inscription, Sinai 345, is found in the temple itself. It's on a votive sandstone sphinx. Um, and it's particularly nice because it seems to be a sort of pseudo-bilingual. Um, it has both alphabetic writing on one side of the sphinx and hieroglyphic writing uh, on the other mm. side. And we'll come back to why that's important uh, here in a second. Um, so... Yeah, a lot of inscriptions. There have been multiple expeditions to Sarabit al-Khadam um, over the years. The first was in 
1904-1905, the famous uh, archaeologist, Egyptologist, uh, William Flinders Petrie goes and he discovers kind of the first seven. And then there are subsequent expeditions by uh, University of Helsinki, um, Harvard University, um, a nature photographer uh, in the 60s happens to find two or three new inscriptions. Uh, Hebrew University finds some inscriptions in the, the late 70s, early 80s. Um, there's a French expedition later. So, you know, all these inscriptions just keep piling up. So in the end, they're about like 45-ish, although um, there are a couple of inscriptions where it's like, is this really an inscription? Is this just marks in the rock? Like, what is this? Um, so... Yeah, the, the number is a little bit fuzzy uh, in terms of uh, the, the numbers, but lots and lots of material, particularly compared to the, the other sites that we'll, we'll talk about. So Very fascinating. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Keep going. Um, so uh, the next uh, site that's yielded sort of early alphabetic inscriptions uh, is Wadi El-Hol, um, which is a, a wadi uh, in Egypt. Uh, it's near the first uh, cataract. Um, in the, the what's known as the Kena bend of the Nile. Um, so like the Nile kind of bends around. Um, and, you know, normally uh, you would kind of take a boat along the Nile and, and take that. But um, because it like bowed out, there was a road that kind of like bypassed the bow. So it'd be like a little bit faster to, to uh, take it. So it's just like Egyptian military road if you needed to go really fast. Um, and the walls of the wadi, so the sandstone walls there, um, have a ton of Egyptian inscriptions uh, written in them, some by um, soldiers that are passing through, um, some by pilgrims or just people who are taking like a day trip uh, even, uh, just happen to like write something uh, in, the, in the walls of the wadi. And uh, during a survey of all these inscriptions um, in the 1990s, uh, two sort of non-Egyptian inscriptions were found, um, Wadi El-Hole 1 and Wadi El-Hole 2. Um, and these were photographed, subsequently published in, I believe, 2006. And um, yeah, they seem to be early alphabetic inscriptions. The letter shapes are very similar uh, to what we see in the inscriptions from Serebi Al-Khadam. Um, they're, of course, um, as, as we'll see with a lot of these inscriptions, there's a lot of variation. There's a lot of like weirdness going on. Mm. Um, and so um, those inscriptions uh, are still not fully understood, uh, even to the extent that we understand the, the inscriptions from Serebi al-Khadam. Mm. Um, and then finally, there are like a couple random finds, I guess. Um, there's what's known as the Lahoon uh, Heteljack. Um, which is this like piece of wood that's used in weaving um, to like separate the fibers. And uh, it has early alphabetic letters on it. Um, it was one of the inscriptions that kind of was lost. Um, people didn't know where it was. And then it was rediscovered um, in the 2000s and re-photographed and republished. Um, then there's the Dare Rifa seal, um, which is... Again, another seal, I think, that was found in one of Petrie's excavations. Um, and I think maybe, again, in the 2000s, someone looked at, it, it was thought that it had, um, like, pseudo-writing on it, that it was just, like, meant to look like writing, but it wasn't really. Um, and someone looked at it again and said, hey, I think this might actually be early alphabetic. Like, here's comparison to what we have from Sarabid al-Khadam, from, from Wadi al-Hol. Um, 
and it seems pretty his his argument um is pretty convincing i think that, that this is probably alphabetic writing um, so a lot of stuff from, from Egypt and Egyptian controlled sites like Sarabid al-Khadam, uh, then like maybe a couple, um, inscriptions from, uh, the Levant. So the Lakish dagger, um, is thought to date to like the 17th century BCE, but it's from a tomb. Um, so it's a little harder to, you know, date that concretely and, and say like, we know exactly when this dates, um, there was, I think, maybe two years ago in 2021, um, another inscription from, from Lakish found uh, a potsherd uh, that was found in a controlled uh, archaeological excavation uh, that probably dates to the 15th century. So kind of a common theme with a lot of these is that they're um, either were discovered a long time ago um, when uh, archaeological methods were still a little immature and we you know, don't really have a good way of, of dating them because, you know, the records weren't kept very well. Um, or they're from contexts that are very hard to date, right? A rock wall on a wadi, I mean, how do you date when people uh, inscribed the, the wall, right? Like, there's nothing that can really, really tell you that. Um, similarly, for a lot of the stuff at, at Sarabid al-Khadam, right? It's on, on the um, walls outside of the mines. Pretty, pretty hard to date. So um, that kind of takes us into to, to the dating of these inscriptions. Um, so, uh, when, when the inscriptions, uh, from Sarabit were first published, um, Petrie, uh, who discovered them thought, you know, they're maybe a new kingdom date. So, you know, maybe like 14th, 15th century. Um, and the first person to like really, um, work on the inscriptions and like find a way in, find a way to like read a couple of the letters and even read a, a single word. Um, that we still kind of recognize as being correct. Um, Sir Alan Gardner, a uh, famous Egyptologist, um, he favored a Middle Kingdom date. And um, we can talk about kind of the reasoning why uh, we have these two rival rival dates. So um, the reason for, or the, the evidence for a, mid, a New Kingdom date, rather, um, is that in one of the mines um, where the turquoise was mined. Um, there is an inscription, uh, Sinai 357, and Petrie had found a pottery sherd in the mine um, that was dated from, from the New Kingdom. Um, and then there was also uh, a couple of these inscriptions, so Sinai 345, the famous Sphinx. There are a couple other Sphinxes, Sinai 346, 347, and 347A. Um, he thought, you know, typologically, these look like they come from, from the New Kingdom. Um, and there are a couple other arguments, uh, regarding kind of the use of sandstone for statuettes, you know, that was only seen in, in the new kingdom. Um, so that was kind of his evidence, uh, for dating these to the new kingdom. Uh, Gardner, on the other hand, um, having kind of gained a better understanding of, uh, the language of the inscription, certainly, um, and a little bit of the content, right? Um, he recognized that these were in a Semitic language, um, said, well, you know, to have inscriptions in a Semitic language, you need people who speak a Semitic language at the site, presumably, right? Um, so he looked at the Egyptian inscriptions, and what's really convenient about a lot of these Egyptian inscriptions is that they mention uh, the content of the expeditions, um, sometimes in, in great detail. They'll mention, like, the cook, the person who drove the donkeys, um, 
you know, how many uh, men from each contingent are there. So with that information, you can kind of get a better understanding of, um, you know, who was at Sarabit al-Khadam. And in the Middle Kingdom inscriptions, um, there are a lot of references to a group uh, known as the Amu, um, which is the Egyptian term for people who are from the Levant. Um, there's also many references to a group uh, known as the Men of, of Rechina, which is, uh, in the Middle Kingdom at least, the term for people from Syria. Um, so you have lots of references to places um, where we know people spoke Semitic languages. And we also have, um, from the Middle Kingdom, references to people with uh, Semitic sounding names um, who are called, you know, either Amu or Man of Rechinu. Um, and there's even uh, a reference to this guy called Hebded uh, in Egyptian, probably something like uh, Habidadu in um, whatever Semitic language uh, he spoke, um, who's called the brother of the prince of Rechinu. Um, so there seems to be this like fairly high-ranking official um, from the Levant who's at the site. Um, and he's even depicted uh, in a couple, I think at least once pictorially, um, as kind of this typical uh, Levantine um, individual. Um, you know, he's got, uh, one, he's riding a donkey, um, which is like a very uh, Levantine thing to do. It's not really... Uh, was done among the Egyptians. I thought that was kind of silly that these people from the Levant rode donkeys. Um, so riding a donkey, um, he has this distinctive, uh, I believe in the literature, it's called a mushroom-shaped haircut. Um, it's basically like he has a bowl cut, um, which is like distinctive uh, Levantine sort of look. He has a, a sort of pointy beard and um, his retainers in the picture are carrying like these distinctive Levantine swords. Uh, throw sticks, things like that. So, like, he's depicted as like the quintessential like Levantine individual um, in these uh, in this pictorial representation. So, so if we're talking about you know what these people look like, um, and we want to look like them. You're saying that we should get a bowl cut, and is it like a specific kind of bowl cut or? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, I mean, I think it's like pretty much just like the same length all the way around, like long pretty long bangs, um, and then like a pointy, like, um, I guess it's probably a goatee. Um, oh, okay. Bottom part is like really, I pointy. can do that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, yeah, we should definitely bring that, that style back. <laughs> um, okay, but keep going. <laughs> sure. Um, and, uh, you know, we have the names of like some of the people in his, uh, retinue. Um, some of them seem to be like pretty, uh, Semitic seeming like one, um, or they're, they're written in Egyptian. They don't seem to be Egyptian names. Um, they're written in um, what's known as uh, syllabic orthography or group writing, um, which is this special form of Egyptian writing that developed to record the names of uh, foreign individuals in foreign places. So um, just by the way it's written, we can tell these are not native Egyptian names. And uh, in many cases, they are... Um, they, they seem to resemble um, known Semitic names. Like there's a guy whose name like looks like it should be Levi probably. Um, and another guy whose name like could be like Cain or Cain or something like that. So like names that look very similar to, you know, other Semitic names that we even know from, from the Bible. So, um, you know, there's a lot of evidence that there were Semitic speaking individuals there in the middle kingdom. 
New Kingdom, a couple references here and there, you know, not really the sort of wealth of evidence uh, that we have for the Middle Kingdom. You know, I think there's maybe one or two inscriptions uh, that mention individuals from the Levant um, during the New Kingdom, definitely not uh, what we have in the Middle Kingdom. So Gardner's argument is that, you know, to have um, people write these inscriptions in a Semitic language, you need Semitic speaking people. Um, based on the Egyptian inscriptions, the Middle Kingdom is where we have the greatest sort of concentration of Semitic speaking individuals at the site. Um, and sort of subsequently, you know, there's been a lot of back and forth um, between these two options, right? New Kingdom, Middle Kingdom. Um, Gardner's uh, dating fell out of favor for a long time. Uh, W.F. Albright really came down hard and said, you know, these are from uh, the New Kingdom, um, looking at kind of the um, the typology of the, the sphinxes that some of the inscriptions were on. Subsequently, though, um, with more data, we now know that you can also have these sort of type of sphinxes from the Middle Kingdom as well. So um, the Middle Kingdom date uh, definitely possible. And particularly with the discovery of the Wadi al-Hole inscriptions in the 90s and their publication in the 2000s, um, I think people, for the most part, are coming back around to a Middle Kingdom date for these inscriptions. Um, the Wadi al-Hole inscriptions, again, not in a you know, great archaeological context that would, would allow uh, an archaeological dating. Um, but again, we have... Um, sort of a contextual dating that we can do, similar to what we do for, for Sarabid al-Khadam. So um, one of the Egyptian inscriptions from, from Wadi al-Hol um, is by this guy called Bebi, who's called General of the Asiatics. Um, so he's a military uh, leader of some sort, and he's in charge of a contingent of uh, Semitic-speaking or people of, of Levantine origin um, under his command. Uh, and he leaves a couple inscriptions there, one of which actually has a date formula in it, which is nice. So it like tells us when he was there approximately. Um, and again, kind of using that same logic, right? That to have um, an inscription in a Semitic language, you need people who speak a Semitic language there to, to produce it. Um, the Wadi al-Hole inscriptions have been dated uh, to the Middle Kingdom, which is when these inscriptions from Bebi uh, general of the Asiatic state. Um, and with that, that kind of led to a reevaluation of the dating of the Sarabit uh, material. I mean, there was a little bit of uh, reevaluation once, you know, we had the more sphinxes that we could compare, Sinai 345, Sinai 346 to, um, but really Wadi al-Hole is what kind of, I think, pushed most people to say, yeah, these probably aren't from the New Kingdom. Like we have these other um, inscriptions they look pretty similar. Um, we can use kind of a similar dating uh, on them. Um, so the the um, Middle Kingdom that's mm -hmm. about two thousand BC ish to seventeen hundred BC ish. Is that, is that Approximately, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the the dates vary a little bit. Um, what's nice about the uh, Wadi al Hole material, um, or not the Wadi al Hole. Uh, the Sarabid al-Khanam material is that a lot of the inscriptions are dated that mention these men of retinue, um, Asiatics, uh, people with Semitic names or people with names in, in group writing. Mm -hmm. They're dated to the, the reigns of particular pharaohs. So we can like narrow things down um, even, even further. Uh, so most of the 
actually, I think all of the inscriptions that mention this uh, Habidadu, brother of the Prince of Rechenu, um, are from the reign of Amenemhat uh, III. So this would be about the middle of the 19th century, middle to the, the end. Um, so we can, hmm. you know, if we're willing to say, you know, there seems to have been a lot of Semitic speaking speakers here during the reign of Amenemhat III, um, this might be a likely context for the production of these inscriptions. You know, you can arrive at a pretty specific date uh, for the, the inscriptions from, from Sarabit. Mm-hmm. And you're saying, and then the New Kingdom um, Wikipedia says 17, the 16th century to the 11th century. So, you know, that's what most people think of, like, as the Exodus. Um, but then before that, the Middle Kingdom is like, like Abraham's time, right? We're, yeah, approximately. Like yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And so, and we can talk about this as well when we when we talk about the the content, because, um, you know. In earlier scholarship, particularly like under Albright, um, there really is this um, idea um, that also kind of persists today, but um, not necessarily in the mainstream of scholarship, that these inscriptions can kind of either not provide direct evidence, but maybe like indirect evidence of Israelites in Egypt um, or, or something of that nature, right? Um, they certainly provide evidence of, of Semitic speakers from the Levant in Egypt, um, but like for, for Albright, um, and then now um, kind of not necessarily in the mainstream, um, it's, they, they provide like, this is, can provide us like sort of indirect evidence, particularly if these inscriptions are thought to date to the New Kingdom, which is what Albright thought, right? They're gonna be, he thought they were like a little bit before the Exodus would happen. And so that they provide some sort of like window into the culture mm-hmm. of, Semitic speakers in Egypt, and then sort of indirectly to Israelites living in Egypt. Um, and so that they could like almost be used as, as evidence um, for like ancient Israelite history um, and culture and religion and things like that. Yeah, for sure. Um, there is uh, as well. Um, so yeah, some of these other um, like one-off inscriptions like the Lahun Hedeljack um, was found in a tomb. The Darifa seal was found in a tomb. The Lakish dagger was found in a tomb. Like none of these were found, um, you know, in contexts that are great for archaeological dating, particularly not with the the methodology that was used at the time. The Lahun Hedeljack and the Darifa seal, I believe, are from Petrie's excavations. You know, this is like at the very dawn of modern archaeology. You know, didn't have a lot of the tools, hadn't sort of developed the whole um, full methodology for like, you know, really excavating things um, in a way that would, would allow you to, to date them more specifically. So what you're saying is that what? I mean, obviously, we are you saying that we can't go back to the site and uncover more stuff or... Um things that are lost or what do you like what exactly about the ways that they did it don't allow for them to date it um yeah like i think um and i'm not an archaeologist so hopefully (laughs) i don't say anything too uh out there but like i think in these early excavations it's just like we we just take everything and we take it out right um (laughs) and not using some like modern techniques so like um, sifting of, of dirt, um, you know, they're really focused on kind of like large macroscopic objects and not like sifting to find, 
um, small things, you know, unless they're like really obviously there, but like, you know, they're just like removing a bunch of dirt um, or like a bunch of debris, not really studying it in detail. Um, the, the documentation is, you know, not um, fully kind of like up to the modern level with, you know, like the different squares and you have like the different loci. Um, it'll just be like, yeah, this was found in this tomb. Um, as opposed to like, it was found in this corner of this tomb, like this far down, you know, in the debris. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So kind of problematic, right. For, um, you know, being able to assign some of these objects to like a particular stratum within the site. Um, and because the, the methods that you were used were kind of like really intensive, you know, like taking a bunch of the material out, like really moving things around, not leaving um, you know, material behind for later excavators to, to look at, which is mm. um, kind of like one of the hallmarks of, of more modern archaeology, right? Like you, you don't just like completely remove all the dirt from the site, right? Like you leave some areas for later excavations to, to excavate. Um, like because it was so intensive, like there's not really in a lot of cases much for, for people to go back and, and excavate, unfortunately. Mm. Um, which is, which is problematic for dating. Um, sure. because there's, uh, like a lot of doubt or, you know, there's, there's a lot of different possibilities for the dating of these early alphabetic, um, inscriptions, you know, until, uh, this recent, uh, shirt from, from Lakish, uh, the earliest inscription that had kind of like a secure archeological dating that was, could be dated by archeological context. Um, was from the 13th century. So the, um, what is it called? The Lakish Bowl, I think. Um, Lakish has uh, yielded like a ton of um, inscriptions. Like they just keep finding more and more. So this also seems to be like an important site for um, early alphabetic, like probably slightly later than um, Serebi al-Khadam and, and Wadi al-Hol based on the, the forms of the letters. But still a very important site for the production of alphabetic text, right? You have the Lakish dagger, the Lakish bowl. Um, it's hard to keep track of all of them. There's like the Lakish fragment, the Lakish sherd, um, you know, they're just a bunch. So uh, the, the one that was published uh, two years ago um, is from a secure archeological context, uh, probably from the 15th century. Um, but, you know, until that was published, you know, the oldest securely datable or archaeologically datable um, inscription is from the 13th century. And so um, one scholar in particular, uh, Benjamin Sass, um, said like, look, we, this is like, we know this is from the 13th century. If we date um, these early alphabetic inscriptions from Sarabit from, from Wadi al-Hol to like the 19th century, which is kind of like what context may suggest, right, with the um, references to Semitic speakers um, at these sites coming primarily from the 19th century, you know, we have a gap of 600 years um, where we don't, like, there doesn't really seem to be a ton of early alphabetic inscriptions that we can kind of place there. So why don't we just move these up from the 19th century to, you know, the 14th uh, century even? Um, so pretty radical redating based on, you know, having this large gap of time um, where there's not a lot of uh, inscriptional material. Um, the publication of this new Lake Assured, you know, would have to push back about 200 years. Um, it closes the gap a little bit. But um, in my opinion, at least, you know, 
when we're studying antiquity, like having these large gaps of time um, where you don't have evidence of something is pretty common, um, you know, even in uh, more recent times, like uh, there was kind of a similar push um, in medieval studies to like move the dates. Uh, it's this whole crazy thing. It's called the phantom time hypothesis. But um, <laughs> someone said, oh, that Charlemagne like moved up the calendar 200 years um, rather than, you know, saying, well, it's the Middle Ages, right? Like, you know, we don't have all of the evidence, you know, maybe there just really isn't all that. Um, much evidence for like these these 200 years. So um, I, I don't think that um, this gap, well, one, I think it's it's getting closed, right, with the finds of more inscriptions, like the, the Lake Assured. Um, there are some inscriptions, I think like the Lakeish dagger um, can be dated typologically based on the, the shape of the dagger, I think. Um, and that probably dates to like the 17th century. So like there isn't as large of a gap as there was necessarily between the likely Middle Kingdom date of the inscriptions from Serabit al-Khadam and, and Wadi al-Hol and more securely datable um, inscriptions. So um, yeah, there's still a little bit of a debate going on. Um, yeah, now it's not so much like Middle Kingdom versus New Kingdom, it's more, and I mean, I guess uh, Sass's um, proposal would, would put these in like the late New Kingdom um, as opposed to like the earlier New Kingdom when one Albright uh, thought this thought uh, they dated, um, so it's like a little bit different than the Middle Kingdom versus New Kingdom debate. Um, but I think for the most part, um, most people think these are you know Middle Kingdom in in date uh, as opposed to, to New Kingdom now. Hmm. <clears throat> okay, um, is there anything else you want to add? I got a couple questions for you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no. Okay, um, so. Most people probably aren't familiar with early alphabetic inscriptions and all that. Um, so what I was hoping to do is uh, just maybe five minutes or less to just talk about the different little inscriptions we have of like the alphabet and like, I guess just maybe a brief survey of really brief survey of just like maybe how they changed or whatever. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, what we see in, in what are presumably the earliest, so uh, inscriptions, so Wadi al-Hol, um, Sarabit al-Khadam, um, the letters are like very pictographic um, to the point where you can recognize what they are a lot of the time, mm -hmm. right? So um, the Aleph is in the shape of a, a bull's head, and you can still even see that like in the modern uppercase A, like if you flip it upside down, you know, you've got the triangular head and the two horns, but in um, the earliest inscriptions, like it's really detailed. It has like an eye. Um, sometimes it even has like ears, you know, horn, like um, maybe a muzzle. And in a couple cases, it's unclear, um, you know, whether there's like a mark like near the nose, if this is just like a scratch or if this was intentional. Um, you know, the the hay, um, very pictographic. I mean, it's like a still a stick figure, right? But like it has like a head and like arms and, and legs. Um, so very highly pictographic, um, particularly compared to, you know, later inscriptions like uh, Hebrew inscriptions from like the, the Iron Age, um, where in most cases, like unless you know what it's supposed to represent beforehand, you couldn't really tell like that it's even supposed to represent um, anything, you know, that becomes very uh, linear, very um, 
uh, schematized, very standardized, right? To the point where, you know, like, um, Aleph, I mean, it gets, it gets rotated, right? So there are all these rotations in the course of the development of letters. So it would be kind of like R capital A, but like turned on its side at an angle. So it's like, and then like a line, right? Um, so pretty far away from like a really clear pictographic uh, depiction of, right. of a bull's head. Hmm. Fascinating. Okay. And um, so can you talk about the difference between like a, a big one that's been talked about recently is the, you know, maybe Hebrew coming from like some Amorite language uh, right here. So, you know, ancient Amorite language discovered uh, there were like two tablets and they had, you know, you know what this is, right? I would assume. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw the publication. Okay. Yeah. Right. So, um, so this right here, like, is that wasn't considered a alphabet, correct? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, written in cuneiform, which is uh, a mixed uh, script. So yeah, I guess um, briefly kind of the, the difference between um, cuneiform and hieroglyphics and, and alphabet. Um, well, in cuneiform, you have uh, signs that represent syllables often. So, uh, you know, ba, bi, b. Uh, as well as um, what are known as logograms. So they're signs that stand for a whole word. Um, so like this one's, uh, like the first one you, you learn when you learn Akkadian is the, the Dingir sign, which just means um, God. And it's in the shape originally of a, of a star. So like there's this connection between um, deities and, and stars uh, hmm. baked into the writing system, which is kind of cool. But um, you don't have that in um, an alphabetic system. So an alphabetic system, basically each sign represents uh, a single sound. Um, kind of the most fundamental building block of, of uh, the language, right? Um, so the Aleph sign, for example, um, represents for us, you know, the descendant of it, it represents the, the ah sound. Um, for the earliest users of the alphabet for um, ancient Israelites in the Iron Age, this would have been uh, what's known as a glottal stop. So this is the, um, it's not uh, a distinctive sound in English. Um, you know, you wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't be in most words, but um, if you say like the word, uh-oh, right, it's the, uh, it's that sound. So that's the sound that the, the Aleph originally made, the sort of like catch in your throat um, sound. Uh, the bait, of course, makes the, the b sound um, and, and so on, right? Like each um, sign makes one sound. Um, there are enough sounds or there are enough letters for all of the distinctive sounds uh, in the language mm. with kind of a, a catch, right? Um, the Semitic languages are built on a triconsonantal root system, right? So uh, most words are built up of three consonants, you know, plus or minus maybe some prefixes and suffixes, um, and you get, you know, vowels inserted in between, and these change right. the meaning, right? So you can have like, melech, king, but malach, uh, he ruled or he became king, um, where the, the vowels change the meaning, but sort of the, the root meaning of the word is contained in the consonants. Um, and so with these early alphabetic inscriptions and continuing even into um, later Hebrew inscriptions from, from the Iron Age, um, most vowels aren't represented. And the earliest inscriptions, they're just not represented at all. They're not seen as like that important or distinctive because um, it's the consonants that like contain the most important meaning of the words. 
unfortunately, this makes these inscriptions much harder for us to read now because, um, you know, for example, if you see uh, MLK, an inscription like, is this king? Is this he ruled? You know, you have a bunch of different possibilities depending on what the, the vowels are. So this makes the job of interpreting these inscriptions much more difficult, unfortunately. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, really cool. Okay. Um, yeah, so there, was there anything else besides context dating content? Uh, I mean, or do you want to go on to how we're able to read these? Yeah, I think this is probably a good place to, to talk about how we're able to, to read these now that we're, we sort of set the stage on how, how difficult um, this is. Um, I mean, even before we, we get to the challenge of like knowing what vowels should go with the consonants, knowing, you know, what the actual no more specific meaning to give to the, the roots, um, we should probably talk about, you know, how are we able to even know what the consonantal values of these letters are. Um, and that's where this um, really helpful uh, principle um, that seems to have been involved in the invention of the alphabet and then was later recognized by scholars comes into play. Um, it's what's known as the, the acrophonic principle. Um, and so according to the acrophonic principle, um, or a system arranged according to the acrophonic principle, um, the values of the letters, the sound values of the letters will correspond to the first sound in their name. So, uh, Aleph, sorry, tried to do the glottal stop sound, you know, it has a glottal stop at the beginning of the word, uh, therefore its value is the glottal stop. Um, maybe I should have used bait. That's a little bit easier to understand, right? So bait, it starts with a B. So it's value, that sound value is B, um, which is nice. Um, and just so we're on the same page, this is early alphabetic inscriptions or specifically Hebrew or? Um, so this is uh, a trait um, uh, used to create, to invent the alphabet and then um, inherited by all sort of descendant traditions that, that come from that. So, um, you know, all, a lot of the, I, sh I should nuance this a little bit. Most alphabets actually descend from this original alphabet um, that we first see attested in the early alphabetic inscription. So Hebrew, uh, Greek, uh, the Roman characters that we use today, um, yeah, I think those are kind of the, the main ones, but like a bunch of different alphabetic traditions. Oh, Arabic, of course. Um, all of these actually descend ultimately from one, one tradition. Um, and we can tell this um, based one on kind of the letter names that they inherit, right? So you have uh, Aleph in Hebrew, Alpha in Greek, um, Aleph in uh, Arabic. So they all have kind of the same names uh, for the letters. And this ultimately is, is what allows us to assign a sound value or is a big part of what allowed us to assign actual values to the pictographs that we see in the early alphabetic inscriptions. Um, because, you know, we have these traditions that have these letter names. I mean, what is Aleph? What is Alpha? Um, you know, to us, they don't really seem to have uh, any meaning and, you know, a Greek speaker, right, who's, who borrowed this um, tradition from the Phoenicians, like Alpha doesn't really necessarily mean anything. But if you look at the, the names in the different traditions, um, it's often possible to associate them with an actual word. So Aleph or Alif or Alpha 
right, um, is the word for ox. Um, it's Hebrew elef. Um, the word bait um, is the word for house, um, and so on, right? Like you can do this with a, with a lot of these, right? Um, mem uh, is related to the Hebrew word mahim, water, and so like there actually seems to be words associated or related to these um, names. And when these early alphabetic inscriptions were first discovered, they're very pictographic. And so um, Gardner, um, who produced kind of the first um, attempt to, I guess, first successful attempt to identify a word in the inscriptions that we now kind of still consider correct today, said, okay, um, well, we have these pictographs that look like ox heads. Um, could this be Aleph, right? Um, Aleph means, or is related to a word that means ox. Um, could we assign this the value of the glottal stop? Um, we have these pictographs that look kind of like the floor plan of a house uh, seen from the top down. Um, usually they're square. Sometimes they actually have like an opening or a door. Um, you know, could this be the bait? Um, could this be the bee? Um, and he was able to do this for some of the pictographs to the point um, where he was able to recognize the word um, that's spelled bait ein lamed tav, so uh, baalat, um, which is the feminine of baal, so uh, the lady. And um, he pointed out, you know, in the Egyptian inscriptions from Sarabit al-Khadam, they're always mentioning Hathor, and they're always calling her uh, the Lady of Turquoise. Um, and I think at that point, um, we had known that uh, the Phoenicians uh, called uh, Hathor uh, Baalat as well, or Baalat Gubal. They identified her with a, with a goddess called Baalat, and he said, yeah, I think this is Baalat. I think this is the Semitic name for Hathor at Serbi al-Khadam. Um, then subsequently, um, through, um, I think maybe like another 15, 16 years, um, better understanding of the, the letters, identification of the letters developed. Um, and you have this very, very common inscription uh, expression in the Egyptian inscriptions that's beloved of Hathor, Lady of Turquoise. And you have this um, sequence that often occurs before the word the lady in the Egyptian or in the alphabetic inscriptions, I think about seven times. That's mem, aleph, he, bait. You have aleph, he, bait. Uh, this is Hebrew, achav, to love. Um, and so this is uh, was identified um, ultimately in 1932 by the scholar uh, Boutin. And he says, um, you know, I, I think this is beloved. I think this is uh, what would be the equivalent of a, a pu'al participle in, in Hebrew. Um, so this is beloved of the lady. And kind of the, the nice proof of that is Sinai 345 that has Egyptian and alphabetic text on it. Mm. Egyptian text says, beloved of Hathor, lady of turquoise. And the alphabetic text says, beloved of the lady. So you have kind of a nice equivalence uh, there that I think really says we're on the right track, like these values actually do work. Um, where we run into problems, or at least where the early um, 
people who worked on these inscriptions, early scholars who worked on these inscriptions ran into problems, um, is they thought um, that the Semitic language that these inscriptions recorded um, was like Hebrew, so that it only had 22 consonants. Um, we now know, and um, maybe should have known, I'm not sure, um, that uh, Hebrew already, um, as it was spoken in the Iron Age, actually had 25 consonants. The 22 consonants are because it borrowed, they, the Israelites borrowed the alphabet from the Phoenicians, who actually had 22 um, sounds in their language. Hebrew actually had 25, so some letters had to pull double duty. Uh, and you can see that today, even when you learn Hebrew, right? You have one character, the shin or the sin, right? That you put a dot on one side or the other and it changes the value. So already right there, that tells you, hey, there are at least 23 sounds in Hebrew. Um, and we just have a dot that distinguishes one. Now, the other two sounds you can see actually in the Septuagint. So the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, um, where words that have um, ein or uh, het, or het in them in uh, Hebrew are written two different ways. And when you correlate these um, with uh, comparative linguistic data from languages that have preserved more um, sounds like Arabic, right? Arabic has not just het, but also het, and not just ein, but rein. Um, you see, hey, the words that you know, in other languages have a rein, um, get written with a, a gamma, and the ones that have ein get written with nothing. Um, and similar sort of thing with the, the het and the he. And so that's why um, I, I remember when I was learning Hebrew, this is kind, was kind of a surprise to me, the, what, what we call in English Gaza, right, is aza in Hebrew. It's written with an ein, um, but it was really a rein. Um, so it gets written with a, a gamma in, in Hebrew. And so that's why it's Gaza in, in English. So, um, you know, this was, this was a problem um, for these early deciphers, the early scholars working on these inscriptions that they thought, hey, this language only has 22 sounds. Well, there are more than 22 symbols um, in the text. And so uh, it was Albright uh, who first realized, hey, you know, other Semitic languages from this time period have larger um, inventories of sounds. And so we need to kind of like expand our horizons beyond um, the Phoenician um, inventory of sounds and consider that there are other letters. Um, this, of course, then becomes a problem, though, for using uh, the acrophonic principle to assign values to those letters, because for the most part, these traditions of letter names all kind of go through Phoenician ultimately. And that means we only have 22 names. So that makes it very hard to then work backwards and say, okay, well, I know the value of, or that the name of this letter means this, and I can find a pictograph to match it up with. And so I can assign a particular sound to it. Um, so it did, you know, this recognition that there are more than 22 sounds um, represented or more than 22 letters represented in these inscriptions um, was, a, was a huge breakthrough, but it also makes things much more challenging because um, we don't necessarily have um, the names uh, for those letters, for those letters. Sorry, did that an accident. Really interesting stuff. Okay. 
Um, so I, maybe you can, maybe you can't. Um, this is putting you on the spot here. Um, so like if we were to say, hey, um, you know, reading from the top here, we have, you know, the Aleph, which is the bull. And then I, I guess this is what Mayim maybe, or, or not Mayim, but I don't know, whatever. Is that a snake or water? I don't know. Um, yeah, okay. that's the um, snake. And then I, I recognize the equal symbol, but um, wh whatever it is, like, are you, so how, how would someone translate this? Like, is this just one word at the top here or is there multiple words or how does that work? Yeah, so I think, um, and this is an inscription that I've um, written about, so um, I have luckily a little bit of a better understanding of, of this one. Um, so uh, I think at least um, I proposed, and this is, um, parts of this go back to Albright, but I've, you know, provided my own spin on it. So um, first we have Aleph, Nun, Tav, or uh, Glottal Stop, NT. Um, and this is the second person uh, pronoun. So this would be uh, Hebrew ata, uh, you. Um, then the equal sign, um, this is one of the kind of extra letters um, that was recognized to exist. So um, in terms of its, its form, um, this becomes uh, Zion. It looks very similar to uh, the Zions that we get uh, in later inscriptions, you know, from ancient Israel, from um, Phoenicia, or from uh, the Phoenician city-states, um, Aramaic, things like that. Um, but it doesn't have a Z sound. It has this, uh, it's called an Ev. So it's the, the beginning sound in the word the. So it's the. Um, and this is the relative pronoun. So it's uh, you who... And then after that, we get um, another one of these sort of bonus letters. Um, this looks very similar to uh, the Hebrew shin, later Hebrew shin, um, but uh, it occurs in words that, based on comparison with other languages, um, didn't have the sh or the, the s sound that, that shin represents. So um, Hebrew shin. Um, uh, that sh sound actually represents, uh, not represents, two um, different sounds coalesced into one. Um, so two sounds that were separate originally um, merged uh, over time uh, in Hebrew. So you have the normal s sound uh, or the sh sound, and then you have the th sound, um, like in think. Um, and this particular sign, which is um, probably a compound bow, um, only seems to occur in words that would have originally had the th in them, as opposed to the s or the sh. Um, so this is uh, the um, letter for th. And then, uh, as you can see in this uh, drawing, there's a lot of damage to this tablet. So um, there's probably another letter there uh, at the end. Um, Albright, I believe, restored a, an ein, or the, let's see if I can do the sound, ein. it's a very difficult sound to, to produce, um, but the, the I um, there, and uh, read it as you, who, and then this the and the ein um, in Ugaritic means to sacrifice or to offer a sacrifice. 
So he thought it meant, um, and I think he used kind of uh, biblically type language. It was something like thou, O offerer, or something like that. Um, and I think um, instead of restoring an, an ein um, here in this broken spot, if you restore a bait, um, then you get this thon plus bait, um, which would be the early alphabetic form of Hebrew uh, shuv, which is to return. Um, and a common phrase in the Egyptian inscriptions from Serebid Achadim is to say, oh, you who have returned to the site, right? Um, these inscriptions are addressed to uh, individuals who will later come to the site, uh, read the inscriptions, and hopefully, or at least it's the hope of the people who wrote these inscriptions, uh, perform a sacrifice or do some sort of memorial action of some sort. And given uh, the other kind of close parallels that we have between um, the early alphabetic inscriptions from Sarabid al-Khadam and the Egyptian inscriptions, right, uh, the correspondence between beloved of Hathor and beloved of the lady, um, this inscription as well, Sinai 349, um, the author has taken the time, or the creator has taken the time to kind of carve out this stela shape. Um, in the rock face, which can't have been easy. Um, and this is actually quite common. I think there are maybe seven, eight, nine inscriptions where the creator has taken the time to either draw the shape of a stela around the entire inscription, or even like carve away to create almost like this relief stela shape. Um, and this is like the most common form for the Egyptian inscriptions from Sarabid al-Khadam to take these uh, incredible freestanding stela that are several feet high um, that were kind of like in the courtyard of the temple, uh, the Hathor. So, um, you know, anybody who went to the site um, when it was when it was active, when the temple was active, you know, would see all of these Egyptian stela-shaped inscriptions. And, you know, if you're thinking, hey, this is the way you write an inscription, like it needs to be stela-shaped, like uh, presumably you would also um, carry that over in, in the alphabetic mm. inscriptions as well. So uh, I think the the phraseology, um, yeah, having um, parallels in the phraseology is to be expected as well. You know, we already have some, uh, we have parallels in kind of the, the material form of the inscriptions, the stela is very important. Um, and so having something like uh, you who have returned here mimicking the Egyptian inscriptions um, makes sense. Okay, so just we're well. on the same page here. So um, I'm sure you said this, but my lack of intelligence here on this topic um, probably made me miss it. So are you saying like, is this one word or multiple words up the top here or, or what? How would you? Yeah, I think if you uh, divide it, it would end up being three oh, okay. uh, words. So you would divide it here after the the plus sign um so the the tav and then you divide it again after the equal sign and then there would be yeah. restored some letter here at the end and that would be the the third letter so um yeah this is another uh challenge to interpreting these inscriptions that there's no indication of where one word ends and another word begins um you know there's no spacing and we can see this even more clearly um, and, and get kind of an idea of how the creators of these inscriptions kind of conceptualized writing in the way they write that uh, very common phrase, beloved of the lady, right? So 
um, the word beloved, because um, it's from the root aleph, hey, bait, um, it ends with bait. And the word the lady, ba'alat, begins with a bait. And in the majority of the cases of the, the writing of this expression, you only have one bait. Um, it's kind of doing double duty um, for the end of one word and the beginning of the other word, um, which kind of gives you an idea that they hadn't, um, you know, like when we read today, right, with we have all these things to help us, right? You know, we have the, the layout of the text, we have spacing, we have punctuation, um, so that writing is pretty far removed from speaking, right? Um, like when you're speaking, it's a continuous flow of sound. Um, and for these early alphabetic inscriptions, it seems that the act of writing is still pretty closely aligned with speaking yeah. um, to the point where things like, you know, combining these words, you know, because in speech, right? If you said something like uh, right? Um, the, the bait is, you know, slightly longer, but, or that that buh sound is, is slightly longer, right? Because there are two of them, but they're right next to each other. And so, you know, you can write it with, with one bait. Uh, you don't necessarily need to like put, put both there. That is extremely fascinating. Wow. Okay. That, I got my uh, money's worth on that question. Okay. Um, <laughs> so uh, it's about hit the, hitting that hour mark. As I said, I'm good to go for as long as you want. Um, uh, but uh, as far as like questions go, um, I mean, we have, what can we infer about the invention of the alphabet from these inscriptions? And what does any of this tell us about the identity of the alphabet's inventors? Um, so we can talk about that, or you, if you don't want to, or um, I don't know how long that would take in your eyes. So what are your thoughts? Um, I think I could I could talk about it briefly, and it, it might be a nice way to kind of wrap things cool. wrap things up, um, yeah, if, if that's all right with you. I mean, um, yeah. So uh, in terms of uh, sorry, the first uh, one yeah. was so yeah. So um, um, just in continuation, what can we infer about the invention of the alphabet from these different types of inscriptions here? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, one other component of the, the acrophonic principle um, is, you know, the, the letters are pictographic. So they represent, um, like, once you know the name of the pictograph, then you can very easily infer the value of the letter, which is, you know, really convenient for, for learning this. Um, but the thing is, is where did the inventors of the alphabet or where do these pictographs seem to come from, right? Like they could have chosen, you know, there are a bunch of different words that start with a glottal stop. There are a bunch of words that start with a, with a B. Um, how do you, how do you pick? Um, and there seems to be a close correspondence um, for most of the letters in the early alphabetic inscriptions where they correspond to um, a hieroglyph in the mm. Egyptian system. Um, so like there is a, a hieroglyph that's a bull's head um, has a completely different value. It's a, it's a, usually a logogram meaning bull or cow. Um, there's a logogram for house, um, and so on. So the pictographs seem to have been picked out of the Egyptian system, um, but given completely different values, um, which tells us, um, a couple of things, right? So we know that these inscriptions are in a Semitic language. Uh, you know, all of the words that we can identify um, 
seem to be Semitic, right? We have the word, uh, the lady, Ba'alat, um, in that inscription we looked at, Sinai 349, we have um, uh, the second masculine singular pronoun, anta, or what would become Hebrew ata. Um, so yeah, everything seems to be Semitic, um, but the shapes of the letters seem to be borrowed from hieroglyphs or maybe hieratic, which is the, the cursive form of Egyptian that's written with uh, pen and ink on papyrus, um, or uh, there's kind of like a, a mix. Like, so hieroglyphs are like what's written in rock and like really fancy monumental inscriptions, and hieratic is like, uh, you know, I'm doing my taxes, like I need to go fast. Um, I'm going to use pen and, and pen and paper. Um, and it's meant to write fast. It's much less pictographic. It's very hard. In fact, a lot of the time to identify, you know, the letters with specific real world objects like you can with, with hieroglyphics. Um, then there's kind of like an intermediate form where it's like, okay, these aren't like the best of the best monument carvers. They're, you know, maybe more used to writing in hieratic. And so you get hieratic features in, in hieroglyphics. So it's what's known as uh, cursive uh, hieroglyphic. Uh, system. So kind of running the gamut there, you have like um, correspondences between um, the shapes of the letters used in the early alphabetic inscriptions and like either hieroglyphics or cursive hieroglyphics, a little bit less so. I mean, some forms do seem to be a little bit more akin to their, their hieratic forms, but there is kind of, it, it does seem likely that whoever created the system borrowed heavily um, from the Egyptian system or was, was familiar. And so, um, from that already, we can kind of infer that this is, uh, a situation of cultural contact between Semitic speakers and they have to have access to the Egyptian script somewhere, like have to be able to see it and interact with it. Um, of course, uh, you know, that there's this whole debate about whether the inventors of the alphabet could read, uh, the Egyptian script or whether they couldn't. Um, you know, with uh, Orly Goldwasser saying, I think these people are, couldn't read Egyptian. Um, and I think she makes some good points. Um, and I think, you know, this is uh, another thing that we can kind of like infer from uh, the early alphabetic inscriptions, um, you know, because the signs that they chose um, from mm -hmm. Egyptian, the, the members of the alphabet have very little relationship to the they were only chosen for the pictograph. They weren't chosen for the sound value at all, right? So um, the pictograph of a house in Egyptian uh, has the value pair, uh, which is not really a buh at all. Um, so one would think, presumably, right, that if they were well-versed in this Egyptian system and they knew the values of these signs, I mean, there is a, a sign that has the value buh in Egyptian. It's a foot. You know, why didn't they choose that or um, something like that? Um, and I guess you could say, well, you know, they wanted to have this mnemonic relationship in their own language. So they had to choose like signs that were, um, you know, that would have the, the appropriate value um, in a Semitic language. But then why bother with Egyptian at all? Like, you know, why you could just pick your own. So like, it seems like that they knew of Egyptian, um, that this is like some sort of um, prestigious form of, of writing for them, but they're not um, necessarily fully like competent in it in, in a way that would um, 
you know, the, the, the distribution of pictographs doesn't reflect what we would expect um, if they were fully competent in Egyptian. You know, they could have picked many different pictographs if they if they knew Egyptian. So the that kind of the, the mix of pictographs that are used in the system, I think, tells us, I think, I mean, I think uh, Goldwasser's um, proposal is, is pretty persuasive that these individuals probably weren't literate uh, in, in hypoglyphics. Mm-hmm. Um, or any Egyptian writing system. Um, but certainly, I mean, the, the minimum that we can tell is that they were Semitic speakers. They interacted a lot with Egyptian. Um, and so, you know, this helps us narrow down, well, where did the invention take place, right? It has to have been someplace where there were people speaking a Semitic language and uh, those people could have interactions. They could view um, the Egyptian script in some way. Um, and for a while, um, before the discovery of the Wadi al-Hole inscriptions, um, it was, some scholars had proposed that Sarabit al-Khadam itself was the site of the invention. Because um, you have a, a ton of the alphabetic inscriptions, you have a ton of Egyptian inscriptions, you have this interaction um, where Semitic speakers can see all of these, you know, lovely stelae in the court of the Temple of Hathor. Um, you know, maybe they thought, hey, we want to do that, and we're going to come up with a writing system hmm. to be able to do that. Um, with the discovery of the, the Wadi al-Hole inscriptions and uh, the realization that you basically have um, alphabetic early alphabetic inscriptions from two sites um, that are pretty far apart, right? You have one in the Sinai Peninsula, you have one, uh, like, in the middle of Egypt, um, these are roughly contemporary. They're both um, from the reign of Amenemhat III, um, most likely. Um, means Sarabita Khadam, probably not um, where the alphabet was invented, unless it's invented even earlier. Um, and so now you can say, well, um, it's got to be a site where you can kind of, like, maybe equidistant from Sarabita Khadam and Wadi al So... Um, one suggestion for the, the site of the invention is the Nile Delta. Because, um, you know, you can just follow the Nile down to get to Wadi Ahol, and the expeditions from Sarabit al-Khadam left from the, the Nile Delta. Uh, and we do have evidence from the Middle Kingdom, um, from uh, Avaris, or um, the modern name Tel al-Daba, of a significant Semitic-speaking population uh, in the Delta. So, um that would be kind of nice. There's even, uh, I believe, a scarab seal um, from Tel Aldaba that says the Prince of Rishnu on it. So you have at Sarabit al Khadam, the brother of the prince, and in the Delta, you have the Prince of Rishnu, um, which is kind of cool. So, you know, this is, we, we don't, um, you know, one, one scenario that we can envision, right, is that. Um, the prince of Rechenu is at Tel al-Daba, and he sends his brother to Sarabit al-Khadam and says, you know, give me some turquoise. Because um, the this um, scarab seal is, like, found in this, like, really nice, um, I think it's it's not a house. Like, it, I think it's been interpreted, like, as a depot, almost like a trading depot that, like, has all these, like, really nice sort of what at the time would have been luxury products. And so they're involved in gathering these luxury products for like, um, not export, but like to take them back to, mm-hmm. to the Levant. 
really cool stuff. Um, so, I mean, I guess I could see it like uh, when we were asking, like, you know, did they have these inscriptions in mind, the hieroglyphics in mind when they're writing? I mean, you did mention that, you know, there was like Egyptian temples next to the, the mining site. So, like, maybe they could have it in reference in the back of their head when they're writing. Or, I mean, are you thinking that, like, maybe these people would run over to the temple real quick, look at it, run back? I mean, is that a, even a possible scenario and how this works? Or, um, or maybe even, like, you said that they made trips during the year. Um, so maybe they could reference the Egyptian uh, marking uh, hieroglyphics then. And then, you know, they have it in the back of their head. Um, does any of that make sense? Is any of that possible as far as how that works and how they thought about all the writings and stuff? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a good question. So I think um, at the time of the invention, certainly, you know, there's a lot of interaction looking at Egyptian inscriptions, like, you know, I got to pick out, you know, I have, you know, anywhere from like 25 to 29 sounds that I need to represent um, to, to create this system. Like, I need to pick out things and I'm going to look at, you know, what this uh, dominant writing system is. Um, I think by the time we get to uh, Sarabit al-Khadam and Wadi al-Hole, it's a little bit more disconnected um, from the Egyptian system, like it's its own system now. Um, and what's nice about the acrophonic principle is that it like is very good for remembering um, what uh, letters go with what sound, right? Like you just need to say, okay, like, and you, there may have even been like a, like an alphabet song or like some sort of like mnemonic device, right? Like ox, house, throw stick, um, you know, all of the different words that you need to remember to then be able to draw, which is like really nice. Like you don't, um, you know, with the, the Roman alphabet that we use today, right? Like it's not really this like nice connection between the shape of the letter and what sound it's supposed to produce. Like there's nothing like inherently a like about yeah. the letter a, um, but you know, as long as you can remember, okay, the word ox um, starts with the sound. Um, I just need to draw an ox or the head of an ox uh, to be able to represent that sound. Uh, you know, the word or the, the sound b is in bait, so I just need to draw a house, right? And so um, it's, it's really nice uh, for being able to, um, you know, remember what uh, letters go with what sounds. Sure. Okay. And uh, so last question, um, most likely, what does any of this tell us about the identify, identity of the alphabet's inventors? Where'd they come from? Were they literate in another writing system? Did you already answer that question? I think I've touched on it uh, a little bit, yeah, but um, I, can, I can talk about it a okay. little bit more as well. I mean, so, um, you know, presumably the inventors spoke a Semitic language. Um, you know, we can tell that just based on the way they used Semitic words to come up with the values for the, the letters. Um, we also know this from, you know, the earliest inscriptions being from what we can read, at least in a Semitic um, language, which is, which is nice. Um, they, as I said, probably had some interaction with Egyptian writing system, whether this is just, you know, viewing it uh, in some context uh, or actually writing it themselves. Um, 
so yeah, it's, uh, and this is one of the reasons why I'm so interested in this topic, right? Is it's cultural contact between people from the Levant and, uh, Egypt, um, producing this new, new thing, um, which is the alphabet. Very cool. All right. Um, these would be super, super quick questions. Um, mm-hmm. uh, what is cursive hieroglyphic? So I'm looking at this, this is something you've been talking about a lot, but what is cursive about this? What makes it cursive? Um, so yeah, like if you think, I mean, uh, cursive is meant to be written fast, right? Um, or at least that was the idea. I don't know if you had to learn cursive in grade school. <laughs> I did. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Me too. And then I never right, used exactly. it again, but I think the idea is that, you know, it's supposed to be faster than writing okay. unconnected. Um, and so uh, this cursive hieroglyphic is, you know, they're not taking the time to, you know, very painstakingly carve monumental style, mm-hmm. um, letters, you know, that are very pictographic, you know, this is, um, much more hurried and, and a lot of cases you can't even really recognize, um, what these are supposed to be. Uh, like I think on the left there, there's maybe the sitting man, but you know, these are just, these become very yeah. abstract. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, um, hieroglyphics that are written more quickly, um, and become more abstract yeah, as a so, result. And I mean, are, are there letters, a bunch of letters touching here? Is that a, a big part of it? Um, I think there might be a couple. Um, so yeah, it is. So unlike, um, like English cursive or, or cursive Roman alphabet, where, you know, you write letters connected, um, I think there are fewer uh, ligatures, um, connections of, of mm-hmm. deliberate connections of letters here um, to the same extent. But yeah, it is is meant to be written much more quickly um, than uh, sort of mm-hmm. uh, monumental and that's hieroglyphics. Kind of similar to another question, which is um, what what about letters that when they touch, what is the significance of that? Like, does that happen often? Is that rare? Does that often tell us if there's two letters touching, does that mean that really it's not even a letter at all? Or what does that say? Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a really great question. Um, cause we do have, um, in some of the inscriptions from Sarabit al-Khadam, there's at least one famous case where two letters do seem to be touching and, um, what that tells me, I think at least, um, because it's at the, it's in a inscription that has two columns and it's at the very bottom of one of the columns. Um, and this tells me at least that the person who wrote this was running out of space <laughs> and they needed to write the two letters very close together, um, to be able yeah. to fit everything oh, in. Um, <laughs> yeah. So they, they wrote basically, uh, a Lamed and a Tav, um, just like they use the tail of the Tav and then put like a line to make the, um, the Interesting. Tough. Okay. And one last question here. Very last question. So when we're talking mm-hmm. about sure. um, variation, I mean, you're, you're talking about people that are technically not literate, at least in Egyptian, if they're writing early alphabetic inscriptions, and maybe they were, I guess, literate in their own, uh, you know, proto language or whatever, early al- alphabetic um, at that point. So um, when we're like, when we're trying to decipher a text, like how much variation is there? Like, is it all over the place? Is it usually pretty finite? 
um, when we're looking at a random text and we're trying to figure it out, um, like how do we determine like if this is just like some made up letter or not a letter at all, or is this just um, just a really badly written Aleph? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's really the challenge um, for for you know some of these corner cases. So for the most part, um, I would say there there is variation. Um, but it's like within a certain range. So you can usually tell um, when something is an olive or when something is a bait. Um, of course, there are corner cases. Um, and the other problem is that um, at Sarabidachadam, at least, all of these inscriptions are in sandstone, which is very fragile. And so um, there was damage to the inscription from like wind or mm. rain, um, you know, in the thousands of years since they mm. were first written. Um, there were also, there's also been damage to the inscriptions since they've been discovered. Um, unfortunately, I think Petrie mentions in the initial publication that um, one of them, they, it fell from, from the camel that they were transporting <laughs> it on and broke four pieces. So, um, you know, they've, they've kind of had a hard life. Uh, and so, in some cases, um, particularly where the surface is very abraded or it's a, an uncommon letter, it's not one of the ones that occurs very commonly, it can be a challenge to say, yes, I know exactly what that letter is. Um, I know what its value should be. Um, so it, it can get tricky. Um, very, very fascinating. Okay. All right. So what I want you to do is I want you to give people uh, just how to access your work, um, how they can maybe even follow you in the future or... Um, maybe even a little advertisement for your book. Um, and maybe we even can talk about that book some other time. Uh, just really quick, sure, yeah. uh, just let everyone know about yourself. Um, yeah, so uh, main place you can find my work is uh, academia.edu um, slash, I think, Aaron Wilson-Wright, or maybe Aaron M. Wilson-Wright. I don't remember if I include the middle initial in there. Um, that's got a lot of my uh, articles there. Um, I also have a Google Scholar page uh, as Sweet. well um, that has links right. to those. And then the book, the book, what's the name? Give us that look. Yeah, uh, Jeremiah's Sweet. Egypt, and this, um, I mean, it's you can get a physical copy. Um, I believe it's also open access uh, through awesome. SBL Press, yeah. so you can just download a, a PDF awesome. of that All as right. well. All right, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun, and I've really appreciated you talking with me today. Yeah, thank awesome. you so much for having me on.